Just King Things is a podcast where we read the books of Stephen King in publication order. As these are largely horror novels, they often deal with complicated and disturbing topics. A list of content warnings is available in the episode description. Welcome back, friends and neighbors, to Just King Things, the show where we read and talk about the books of Stephen King in publication order. I am Michael, and with me, as usual, is Cameron. Michael. Uh-huh. Look at your shoes, Michael. Uh, okay. Do you see that smoke? Oh, no! Ah! Oh, oh, I hate ah! smoke more than anything in the world! Ah! Oh, oh. I'm setting your shoes on fire. Oh, oh, no, no, no. I thought you had caused some sort of, I mean, it's, it's better that they're on fire than, I don't know, me suddenly thinking all of my shoes are snakes or something. I would never do that to you. That's immoral. <laughs> um, you know, I really thought about uh, stealing all your change out of your uh, um, coin-operated machines. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, you know, it would be rude to only steal it from your payphone. I would steal it from your... Um, uh, you know, uh, a little Debbie machine that you have at work. <laughs> I would steal it from your uh, the the little thing where you can get get like a little you sit like in the mall and you sit in a vibrating chair like a massage chair. Mm-hmm. You put quarters into that. I would of course steal all the quarters from your arcade machines. But I thought it was a little bit more polite to set your feet on fire. Mm-hmm. Well, if it helps, I deserved it because I was on a very angry call with my girlfriend and I was being a misogynist. Mm-hmm. Oh, we are describing uh, various incidents that happened in the 1980 novel Firestarter. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's what we're going to be talking about today and I didn't know Cameron if you wanted to say something uh, uh, special about this because I think in our first episode you said this might have been the first King book you read and I don't know if you had any memories of that or yeah I'm pretty confident it is I, I, I'm like 80-85% sure the first Stephen King I might have read might be Skeleton Crew mm. um so and weirdly enough it might be the short story the mist which is which is pretty pretty interesting i mean that opens that collection mm-hmm. but i think you know hard to know hard pretty murky but the, if this was not my first one it was my second you know it's either skeleton skeleton crew or this i can't remember exactly which one i read first uh, but it was right there at the beginning and it's a weird one to start with because it's pretty unlike the stephen king novels that come before mm-hmm and it's pretty unlike the Stephen King novels that come after, at least in content. I think form-wise, the thing that that we said last episode about the Dead Zone, you know, that this is kind of Stephen King. The Dead Zone was Stephen King fully formed, right? This is like all the Stephen King stuff finally compressed into one package and basically in the same kind of rhetorical mode or the formal mode that we see him in for the rest of his career. That's still here. But the characters that show up in this, the the way it's plotted... The concerns of this novel in a broad (laughs) sense, all of those are not really things, other than in very abstract senses, they're not really the kinds of things that show up in later Stephen King novels. And I kind of think that has to do with 
Stephen King having a daughter who is about eight to 10 years old, somewhere around here mm-hmm. at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and being very concerned about that, where for the most part, um, you know, I would say in general, the rest of Stephen King, when it's concerned about children, it's boy kids and, and boy kid feelings. Yep. Um, and so there's something going on here, even, even in a very kind of fundamental sense there about who sits at the middle of this novel. But that's getting a little bit too close into the weeds uh, before we get going. Yeah, it's it's one of my first or my second uh, Stephen King novels. I thought I remembered more than I actually did. Mm. Um, I For some reason, I thought the end of this novel took place in, like, traffic. Huh. Huh. That they were, like, on a highway and, like, doing it. And that might be in the Firestarter movie. Mm. Um, but but for some reason, I don't believe I've ever seen the Firestarter movie. So I don't know where I'm getting that. So I had really strong sense memory and, and like, uh, a content memory of things <laughs> in this novel that didn't, that didn't take place. I also thought for some reason that there was a confrontation between um, John Rainbird and Andy like in the snow somewhere. So I was obviously com- combining wow. yeah, like the scene where he's in the tree. I was combining that with some stuff that happened later. So um, a lot of surprises for me I'll say, yeah. <laughs> while reading this novel and, and uh, memories I had being, being false memories, almost as if I'd been pushed into believing that they were true. Let's talk about what this book is about. Let's do the five sentence summary. I think this is you this time, yeah? It is. This is on me. <clears throat> so, fire starter. Five sentences. Here we go. Andy McGee and his seven-year-old daughter, Charlie, are on the run from a mysterious government organization called The Shop. Years ago, when he was in college... Andy and his future wife, Vicky, were part of a shady drug test uh, that was a shop project, which ended up giving them mild psychic powers. Semicolon. Later Mm -hmm. on, when they had a child, Charlie, she had more psychic powers, chief among them, pyrokinesis. Okay. okay cool great <laughs> true um, all true yes vicky dies and charlie and andy spend a while running from shop agents before eventually being captured while in captivity at the shop charlie becomes the target of a very strange government hit man named john rainbird And eventually, Andy comes up with a plan to escape, and uh, Charlie uses her magic powers to blow everything up. The end. Yep. (laughs) That all happens. Yep. (laughs) That certainly is the summary of Firestarter. (laughs) And you you might say, listener, wow, that novel's 500 pages long? (laughs) (laughs) To which we would say... Indeed, it mm-hmm. is. Uh, I think in big, broad strokes, this is a short story stretched out to novel length. Yeah, it's a very strange novel in the sense that 
I feel like there are so many things about it that I think are really good. Like the core conceit of this novel is really cool, right? The idea of, oh, they did the, the um, you know, shady like drug trial and that gave them powers. And then they had a kid and she had stronger powers and now they're kind of on the run. And uh, it, it, in some ways, it is kind of the closest to a pure airport thriller that we've gotten, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it, absolutely. It has that. It's almost a there's there's a bit of a almost like Michael Crichton kind of vibe to the stuff that's happening here. Yeah, it has the pace that, you know, for people, if, you, if you've never read a Michael Crichton novel, I, I 100 percent agree. But if you've ever seen something like The Bourne Identity, like like that kind of of uh, film vibe to it, that's exactly how this moves. Like they're always on the move, always on the run. Any moment of pause and happiness is short lived because they're always being pursued. Um I, I think that's a really um, uh, appropriate um, kind of genre tag to put on this. It is not in any way a horror novel like we would think a Stephen King novel would be. Mm-hmm. Exactly, yes. Uh, and the it also has shades of... Uh, we talked in the previous episode about how the Dead Zone feels like a, a fix-up novel that never actually happened. And so does this, because we get all of these... Like you would think, right, there's a there's a more straightforward, I say straightforward, but I don't know if that's necessarily true way of telling the story, which is like, um, you know, Charlie and Andy on the run together because they they have this sort of uh, like they have an incredible Hulk style backstory, right, where they're going (laughs) from town to town, like taking on new identities, living in hiding and helping people like that's straight up. Yes straight up what they are doing um but we only we don't get that's not actually the story right we get we we join them in the narrative like the day before they get captured so we only get sort of hints of all of the stuff they have been doing while they've been on the run for two years or whatever and then we get some flashbacks to when uh vicky was still alive and charlie was younger and in typical stephen king fashion right we we take what might be a very straightforward very actiony plot and it becomes uh sort of the background noise for a bunch of characters talking to each other and working things out (laughs) Yeah, 100%. Yeah, as you were talking about that, it's something that we've said a few times, but it's 100% like the the bourgeois novel, right? Like <laughs> not quite the novel of manners, but mm-hmm. but something close to that, right? Of like uh here are people kind of talking to one another and operating within these systems and then oh yeah, let's remember back to like an action moment that happened far far beyond and then like we'll sit with that for 10, 20, 30, 40 pages. Mm-hmm. And then we come back to, you know, someone literally sitting in the dark in a furnished apartment under the ground thinking about their life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so it's a really weird, it, the pacing is bizarre to it because it doesn't drive forward in any kind of way. It's always like two steps forward, one and a half steps back, two steps forward, no steps forward, um, you know, kind of mixed up in, in weird ways. And I think that a lot of this has to do with the, you know, famously something we've talked about several times in the show is that Stephen King doesn't outline. And mm-hmm. so, I, you know, we I think we are really getting sometimes in real time Stephen King determining how did this character get here. Um, and I think sometimes that produces moments of sheer brilliance later on in the show. Where I, I want to talk with, about one character who is almost entirely constructed out of these like flashback moments. Uh-huh. But for the most part, it just really makes it makes something very plotty. Like you're saying, feel not very plotty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, 
it is a weird novel in that way. And I think it is also a strange novel because, uh, and I'm trying to think of like sort of the best way to put this, some king problems <laughs> come to be on display here in a way that they have not exactly been displayed before. There have been hints of them, um, but they kind of come out in some really unexpected ways this time. And in fact, uh, this book in, in some cases feels very Bachmanian. There's there's some Bachman style uh, flourishes to to this writing. Um, that you know that sort of bleakness, that grossness, that uh, uh, occasions of cruelty, uh, mm-hmm. and they uh, you know cruel. Those things can be in art, um, but you know they have to land in a certain way, and it's it's a question where some of this stuff lands. <laughs> Uh, yes, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I mean, I think that this is, as we talked about last time, we're in cocaine years, mm-hmm. and that comes with, I think, a, well, maybe I'll say this, all of the most famously weird, disgusting, truly, absolutely capital B, bleak and depressing moments in Stephen King happened during the 1980s. Mm-hmm. And I think in some ways it's because the, the man is doing a huge amount of drugs just and, and drinking a lot and is basically uneditable, question mark. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think that he's kind of becoming, certainly by the mid-80s, is at the height of his powers uh, as far as like his ability to kind of push things around. And I think he's also a very compelling person. You know, every interview that we listen to where someone's talking about Stephen King, I think he his... Um, Interest in his own work is in, in promoting himself is maybe infectious in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's got a high charisma score. Yeah, <laughs> as a person, he's also like almost seven feet tall, so I bet that's intimidating. Yes, no, it's like, oh man, I I gotta let him put this in the book, or else he'll beat me up. Uh, but but yeah, so so I think that this is the beginning. We saw a little bit about in the dead zone, and we talked about it in that episode. But this is the beginning of I think some of the the most socially uncomfortable. Um, uh, disgusting, um, unsavory, right? Mm-hmm. Just like, I don't know if this made this book any better and it only made it worse um, kind of vibe. And I think in Stephen King's mind, he includes a lot of these things and we're going to be you know talking about them in basically every episode going forward for a very long time. I think he includes a lot of these more uh, just purely socially offensive things in them uh, Mm -hmm. because he is, I I think he sees himself as part of a lineage of like 1960s and 1970s um, artists who are pushing the boundaries of what American fiction does. Yeah, right. Transgressive art. Exactly. And Stephen King is the 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 bannerman for bourgeois art <laughs> in the 20th century like there there's perhaps no one who is literally at one point he becomes the highest paid author in the world mm-hmm. uh, you know famously he, he talks about that and so it's impossible to to be both but i think the way he sees himself versus the way he actually exists in the world are just two different things um, which, which, uh, let's just talk about them. Which things are you talking about here, Michael? Cause there's like, as you said that, I thought, oh, there could be five or six things that Michael's <laughs> referring to here. So the character of John Rainbird generally, there's a lot happening there. Mm-hmm. Um, the language and ways that psychic powers 
and especially psychic powers possessed by young girls uh, are imagined and talked about sort of in relation to young girls' bodies and bodily functions and adolescence. Mm-hmm. Um, there is also, uh, oh gosh, I can't even um, remember the character's name. Is it is it Pinchette? Ooh, the doctor, I can't pull his name right now, but I can look. Yeah, but that that whole, like, uh, back in, like, sort of, actually back, like, eighth of the novel um, little subplot with uh, that doctor and the things that happened to him. And uh, I suppose we'll talk about this all in more detail. Uh, but those are maybe kind of the big three for me. There's, like, one other thing that I think is very indicative, but it's just a passing detail. And uh, as kind of a preview... I guess that's when Andy, when we get the first Andy's flashback to when they're undergoing the drug trials um, and they're given essentially like LSD plus stuff. What makes you psychic? Uh, mm -hmm. And Andy is uh, sort of tripping and he's going in and out. He doesn't have quite, uh, you know, he, he doesn't have quite a grip on the, the place around him. And so this person who is not a grad student, because the, the tests were initially being administered by grad students. And then at some point it's clear that like the grad students got cleared out. And now the people who are here are shop agents. Um, there's just sort of this guy who very vaguely like authoritative military looking guy who's trying to talk to Andy and Andy because he is, you know, having his weird LSD onset psychic powers, like suddenly knows this guy's name. He knows what his job is and how long he's been doing it. And then he knows that like one time he killed a woman and then he had sex with the corpse. Yep. And it's like, uh, hmm? <laughs> and, and it's, it's dropped in as a, uh, I don't know, like a bit of flavor, right? Uh -huh. Like the, you know, the horror that's underneath American society, question mark. Um, but there's no reason for it, right? It doesn't, it doesn't add to the texture of the novel. It's just bleak to be bleak. Yeah, it right? would make so much more sense. And I was thinking like, maybe I, maybe, I was thinking maybe this was the thing that I forgot. And I was thinking maybe that character came back later. Mm -hmm. Right. That that would be someone who we met later when we were at the shop. But no, like this is the only time we he's ever mentioned. And it's just as you say, it's just dropped in and it's kind of like grossness and bleakness for the sake of it. Mm -hmm. um, and people thought they invented edginess in the early 1990s. <laughs> but really, it it is that kind of like. Um, you know, what we associate with edginess, right? Um, yeah. Stephen King was the first edge lord um, in 1980. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, but it, it, and that's peppered throughout the novel. And I think the same thing, Pinchot is the, the, the doctor's name that mm -hmm. Andy works Pinchot. with, like, like Pinchon, but, uh, with a T, uh, for, for those of you following along at home. But, th but that is, you know, this little subplot that is basically that, uh, Pinchot is the novel labels him as a transvestite. Mm -hmm. And it it doesn't do anything other than uh, bring it up. Um, and there's some like I don't know the the thing that goes on uh, where his frat brothers make him uh, dress up and then like they all masturbate together. Mm -hmm. um, and but it doesn't go anywhere, right? Like yeah. it, it, you know, that character ends up due to this kind of effect that uh, to being mind controlled ends up killing themselves but it's just kind of flavor for the character mm -hmm. um and 
You know, I think for a lot of this, we were talking about before the show, and I'll bring this up again later, but I think that so much of this, of even the most bleak parts of Stephen King in the 1980s, um, and not just bleak, but but like casually cruel and um, um, voyeuristic for the sake of voyeurism, right? Mm-hmm. It, it it comes from uh, you know just rip from the heads, headline stuff, right? Stephen King catches a news report about the idea that men dress in women's clothes, mm-hmm. and that spirals that that finds its way into this thing, um, right? In ways Fam- that he a suburban family shaken by father's dark secret revealed. Exactly right. It's uh, Geraldo, uh-huh. right? Um, it's American Geraldo logic uh, that just is, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, suffused into Stephen King at this point. This is going to be examples two, one and two of, you know, th- three to one thousand that we're going to see of these things, moral panics, essentially, that Stephen King is using um, uh, to just put in the novels to make them have flavor to make them show the dark side of american whatever um you know i I don't i don't understand why they show up but but i think that he thinks that he is representing the world in some way Mm -hmm. absolutely like 100 i think it's uh i think if we were to ask steve about this he would say something about kind of his job as a, a horror author um, or, you know, a horror adjacent author who is uh, trying to get us to consider the the ugly things about the world, mm-hmm. um, which is like, all right, um, I considered them. Am I going to think anything about them or maybe integrate them into some sort of like worldview or politics? I'm No, no, I'm just going to like be titillated or disgusted by them. OK, yeah. And, <laughs> and you're going to go back to like your middle class values, right? Mm-hmm. Um thinking, oh, isn't it weird that that character did that? Um, And so while, you know, I think there really are two sides in the sense of, I think Stephen King thinks exactly what you just said. And I think that when we read this in 2021, we can only see, you know, the uh, evocation of very old and even old at this time in 1980, um, trans panic, you know, kind of logics. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I think there's a really easy line to draw from Stephen King dropping into this novel to bathroom concerns in you know the the 20 teens and it's middle class panic about anything that is uh, outside of the absolute capital in norms of mm-hmm. of the social and stephen king is using that as horror flavor essentially right of like look mm-hmm. at all the different things that are not middle class values mm-hmm. and uh you know when stephen king says that he's just a dude from maine and he trusts the working man right <laughs> thinking back to Thinking back to um, the stand commentary that, that I listened to for for uh, our bonusode, he means it <laughs> like mm-hmm. he's not he's not joking around. And I think that that produces some of the worst parts of Stephen King is when he recognizes that that's his tradition. You know that he is from a very kind of central core American values uh, in all the most stereotypical and often negative ways, and. It, he recognizes he's from that and he, and then he doesn't think beyond it. Um, Mm -hmm. and and I think we see a lot of that here, but not to hijack this episode with talking about all the problems of Stephen King. Let's talk about some of the other problems of Stephen King. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, not necessarily a problem, but it's interesting that this is, I think the episode in the book where we're having this discussion most explicitly because just about every single novel we've read at this point has been, uh, in some way, a post Watergate novel. I'm starting to think maybe as, uh, we had, I don't think we dealt with Watergate in a, in a good way. I'm starting to think that. (laughs) 
<laughs> like as a country. Yeah, I'm thinking. I'm thinking as a country, as individual. Like Stephen King, obviously as an individual, but also as a country. I'm starting to think that maybe there was some processing or, or something more that needed to happen there. Um, but this is very much a kind of like post Watergate, even post Vietnam uh, novel that is like gunning for like the government is bad and is going to destroy us uh kind of kind of messaging um and, and in that way it is sort of his most politically outspoken novel um mm -hmm. but it's outspoken in a in a fairly general way right this is not king providing a platform for politics or anything um but it is him really leaning into that 70s paranoia thriller uh, uh vibe I think that if you read, you could read all the Stephen King novels up to this point, and if you didn't know anything about Stephen King, you could think he fought in Vietnam. <laughs> he he writes from the especially from Vietnam vet character perspectives, and uh, when he's writing about vets, he writes as if he were there. Mm. Um, it's deeply weird to me because uh, it shows up a couple times, obviously with John Rainbird, who we'll talk about in a second, but then. Um, the the shop characters at the end when he's talking about how their tactics oh, and all that kind right. of stuff. It, it, like, he writes with such an authority about Vietnam and the experiences of Vietnam that you would be... I think you could convince yourself that he had been there. But but yeah, I mean, what I wrote in the notes is this is the most fuck the government novel so far. <laughs> and, and in that kind of apolitical, you know, as a first principle, the American government is bad, full stop. Mm -hmm. uh, kind of vibe, which is like, you know, people can feel that way. Um, and and I think coming out of the 1970s and the 1960s, you would probably be right to feel that way. But the the thing that that's in my mind, right, is that the kind of apolitical nature of it, right? It's not it's not the government is bad, so then therefore we should be communists, or it's not the government is bad, so then therefore we should support the Black Panthers. It's just the government is bad in this most you know kind of raw libertarian mm -hmm. sense. And so it's really easy, you know, when you're talking about not processing Watergate correctly, <laughs> it's, it's so easy to see how someone who considers themselves to be on the left, like Stephen King, ultimately ends up in a spot where they, you know, where all of the Reaganist policies make 100% sense to them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like it's uh, Reagan's strong against the Soviet Union in the Cold War. Um, Reagan thinks that the government does all kinds of bad stuff and it's big government forms and we should remove some of those things, right? Make mm -hmm. people more free. I don't think that Stephen King like voted for Reagan probably, but the ideology on display and even in the afterward to this novel where he uh -huh. says the government did all this stuff, you know, yeah. <laughs> he's very, he's very direct about it to us as an author. You can hundred percent see how the, the alignment of people who are, who believe themselves to be on the left, but who we would think of as the center left, how they 100% just end up aligning, if not political party wise, in all their basic assumptions with the far right in the 1990s. Mm -hmm. on, on slightly less, well, I guess it's less political, um, but has political implications. One of the things that is interesting about this novel is that Stephen King ends up basically making the the theory of mind from psychoanalysis like a material fact about like how your brain works and this is what all of the sort of psychic stuff kind of operates on 
And if you've listened to like our other show, Game Study Study Buddies, where we talk about uh, books of game studies, um, we have talked about psychoanalysis a couple of times there. And one of the points we tend to make when psychoanalysis comes up is that uh, it has a lot of really regressive ideas about race and gender baked into it. And so this means in this novel, within the first, you know, for me, it was the first 10 pages uh, when we're getting, you know, kind of the setup and a little bit of exposition about Charlie uh, and Andy's powers. Um, Andy, uh, Charlie's father, his particular psychic power is a thing called the push, uh, which is what Cameron referenced um, earlier in the episode. Uh, And the push is just a... Uh, in the novel, they end up calling it like, you know, mental domination powers. It's uh, Jedi mind tricking someone. You just mm-hmm. say like, you you would love to, you know, not arrest me. And then the person like the shop agent does not arrest you. Or uh, actually what Andy says is like, you're blind now. And then uh, the the shop agent is hysterically blind. Um, I mean, the time the timing here works out such that this was almost certainly influenced by Star Wars. Oh right. my gosh, almost certainly, yes. Like, yeah. I mean, it's 1980, right? It's, it's three years on. Come on. Mm-hmm. 100%. <laughs> he saw that and he was like, hell yes. <laughs> what if that, but for everything? Uh, but the, the the thing that I was working around to that is, uh, you know, very weird and Stephen Kingy and in so many ways is uh, an offensive. Um, is that within the first 10 pages, uh, we get a little bit of reflection from Andy on like how well his mental domination powers work on uh, people of various races. Yep. And and because like that's a thing that he's, I guess, been studying. Uh, And then also like, you know, uh, with people of various uh, uh, like mental capacities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. like just and, and it it speaks to something that you you've said before. Uh, I think you also said it last episode about uh, the the science fiction in Stephen King that the man can't help explaining things. <laughs> yeah, he can't. He cannot help but and and uh, even beyond that, right? He he says uh, specifically we in those hierarchies you were just talking about. Mm-hmm. He says specifically it doesn't work on an, animals or the mentally disabled. Yes. So like those are the same for Steve, but yes. but anyway, yeah, he can't help he cannot help himself, right? And the way that Stephen King thinks through the mind is deeply, deeply Freudian. Yeah, for for a man who uh, sp- you know takes several shots at Freud over the course of his early career, he d- he does turn into a straight up Freudian, you know, out of the nineteen twenties. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, to get at what I was talking about, like, girls and women and their bodies, right, uh, the doctor who or- orchestrated the experiments that gave all these people their powers, um, Andy and Vicky, they're lucky because they're, like, two of the three people that survive, um, like, two people, it's, it's you know, like, a dozen college students, and, like, I think two of them die during the trials, and then the others, like, sort of die slowly over the, the ensuing years as they uh, develop various um, issues in their personal lives and so on. Um, and then there's, like, one person, oh, also, it should, if in case you didn't know, it should be clear by now, when we think about, like, Stranger Things and sort of, like, the retro 80s Stephen King wave it was writing, um, it takes this book, Firestarter, or specifically the movie, um, starring Drew Barrymore uh, and runs that through E.T., which was also a Drew Barrymore film. And then was like, what if also the Goonies were there? So <laughs> uh, and the Goonies is it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it crossed with uh, the body. I, I Yeah, the I I really well, I don't know. We can, we can get into it probably at a later date. But I really wonder what's up with the 80s and children. 
Mm-hmm. Like such as, you know, our, I don't know. We'll figure it out later. <laughs> we will. That'll be the next podcast. Yeah, uh, what's up with kids? <laughs> two PhDs. Try to think it out. <laughs> what is going on with them damn kids? Uh, but, oh, gosh. Anyhow, um, uh, so uh, the the doctor who orchestrates all these experiments is this guy named Wanless, um, is trying to talk to the guy and head of the, the, the person in at the head of the shop is a, a character named Cap. His name is, um, I think it's John or James Hollister, but he's a captain. He's like former military and everyone calls him Cap. And he's trying to explain to Cap, because uh, Cap is the one who wants Charlie caught because he's like, you know, oh my gosh, think of the war applications with this child who can start fires with their mind. And Wanless uh, has grown increasingly paranoid since the, the trials were taken out. And he basically believes that Charlie is, uh, like, as she gets older, her capacities are only going to increase, and this is going to be incredibly dangerous, right? He is afraid that uh, she's going to get to a point where she cannot control her ability to start fires, and she will just, like, like he literally thinks she will just destroy the world, right? She is basically, for him, a a kind of uh, walking atom bomb. And he is trying to explain this to Cap, and he talks about how they must have, like the parents, Vicky and Andy, must have trained Charlie like they would have toilet trained her. So they're like building, so they they like punished her and yelled at her enough when she was starting fires accidentally when she was a kid to like build up a complex. And this is specifically the term that he uses, right? A complex. Um, and so Charlie is resistant to using her powers, but... Uh, you know, the and that's that's some sort of like check or fail safe. But one of two things is going to happen. One, either her powers are going to exceed whatever sort of mental block she has. Or two, especially if the shop gets a hold of her, they are going to work to like undermine that complex. And then all hell will, you know, literally break loose, right? Like uh, the the everything will just come spilling out. And this is likened to both uh, sort of like excretion i already said it's talked about as toilet training um but it's also likened to sort of like a a sexual awakening in adolescence there's something extremely weird going on here with the way that charlie is thought of as a sexual creature or is people talk about how hot she's going to be when she grows up this child is eight years old i think Mm mm-hmm um, that people mention that multiple times in this book, uh, how she's going to be so beautiful when she grows up. John Rainbird falls in love with her, um, yeah. in, in a very complicated way. I don't think it's meant to be sexual in any kind of way. I think that would be a misreading of what's going on, but, but it also reveals that if it's because it, it certainly is not sexual. And so if it isn't sexual, then what the hell is going on? And there's no answer to it. Well, it's, <laughs> like it, I think it. It's kind of like the hollow, like, I think that, you know, she's going to be so beautiful when she grows up. That's such a, like, thing to say, right? It's like what you say when, like, your friends come over and, like, you see their, like, infant daughter or whatever. It's kind of like a nice thing you say to the parent, but then it gets, like, sort of folded out into, like, what everyone in the world is thinking about this little girl. And yeah, it's free indirect discourse. Yeah. <laughs> For, like, just straight out of Jane Austen, right? And it does not fit here. 
it's it's very very strange yeah and then when they're captured by the shop in the back half of the novel they talk about her as uh as they're trying to convince her to cooperate with their tests and to use her fire powers because uh one thing we haven't talked about is that before they are captured they end up at a farmhouse in upstate new york with the the an elderly couple called the manderses and the shop comes and tries to catch them and charlie you know sort of flips out and like destroys a whole bunch of stuff and she feels really bad right she feels very bad whenever she uh like hurts people but she sort of refuses to use the powers and definitely she's not going to use them for the people that she knows for a fact have like kidnapped her and her father uh but she is described and thought about as like a safe that needs to be cracked and john rainbird thinks of her in this way especially but Mm -hmm. um you know, sort of specifics of the metaphor aside, it just takes on such a weird resonance when we're thinking about like how to get inside this girl and her mind and like persuade her to do things. And it's in fact really weirdly uh, paralleled by a memory that Andy has because what the, the other thing that this novel does is it sets up um, Andy and Rainbird as like competing father figures for Charlie. Mm hmm. Um, and Andy has this weird memory of when he was first dating Vicky and she had just gotten out of a really bad relationship. And so she didn't really enjoy sex. And so we get this long rumination from Andy's perspective of how he like slowly like worked with Vicky so they could enjoy sex together. And it is so difficult not to see these as like sort of parallel, uh, plot threads. Yeah. I mean, you know, something um, that you said the last time about the dead zone is that in some ways it's rewriting Carrie. And this novel also feels like it's rewriting Carrie. Uh, Weirdly enough, it feels like it's rewriting Carrie the film, right? Because Mm -hmm. there's kind of pyrokinesis involved in that. Um, In some ways, it's the Stephen King machine eating itself in that regard. But um, but this is a child who barely for 90% of the novel barely has sentience, right? Mm-hmm. She, she is like the stereotype of a stereotype of a child. Mm-hmm. She's less of a character than Danny. Yes. A hundred percent. She is substantially less of a character than Danny Torrance. And so I, there's all this projection, I guess that's happening. And, and I guess, you know, an attentive listener will hear us using all these psychoanalytic terms because uh-huh. they're the only way to make it. Any of this kind of makes sense. It, it really is a novel that, um, I, I that kind of dances over all of these things and just assumes you're going to read over them. But if any of them to me, when I was reading so many of them are just big roadblocks of like, what is the number one? What is the motivation of this character? Number two, who is this character? Like, what? <laughs> like, what are like their qualities or or their being? And three, Charlie is a child, and if mm-hmm. Charlie is a child, almost none of this makes sense as uh, you know, um, just as raw information. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know. Uh, th- th- this is a truly bewildering novel in a lot of different ways. Yeah. Um, the other thing, I mean. When we're going to talk about things that are bewildering, I know exactly where I want to take us, but I want to stop and think for a minute. Uh, so we've talked about uh, how uh, Charlie's powers are conceived. Uh, well, Andy's powers, the push that we just mentioned, and I think this ties in with what you said about uh, you know heavy cocaine years, it is 
Andy is the first type of a new Stephen King character. First of all, actually, I want to point that about, out about him. Um, but second of all, it is his his abilities, his psychic powers, and his use of them are very much described uh, in terms of addiction. Yeah, and, and it's a very stark difference from like the way that Charlie's powers feel. Because even even when mm -hmm. she's using her powers and when she talks about them, it is straight up like her emotions. Right? She doesn't know if she can control them. Like she feels sort of like the condensed heat, and she needs to push it into water to extinguish it. Um, whereas for Andy, he you know can be very very persuasive with people. Like I don't know our old friend Steve King maybe. And at the same time, it is killing him every time he uses the push. And if he uses the push too much, he starts to get headaches. Uh, but when we eventually find out that every time he uses the push, he's basically causing like micro hemorrhages in his brain. Uh, and it's eventually what kills him is uh, he uses like one last big push at the end and it, you know, just he's gone. Um, and I think that is interesting. One, because of how King here is clearly imagining like, power and talent and persuasiveness and he's mixing them up with drug addiction or the feeling mm -hmm. of being an addict of the rush of being able to do something and then sort of the the painful physical consequences of it and you know i've read plenty of interviews with king by this point and when he was um deepest in his substance abuse one of the things that he's been very honest about is uh he was afraid to stop using because he was uh, very, very terrified of the possibility that using drugs and drinking were the only things that made him a good writer. Yeah, I, that that feels very apparent, especially because Andy becomes actually addicted to drugs at one point. The, mm -hmm. the shop uh, puts him on uh, Thorazine, maybe something like that. Puts him on the sedative. Yeah, it's Thorazine. Um, and... Uh, but so literally he trades one drug metaphor for <laughs> a literal drug and then uses his mind power to um, hypnotize himself to mind control himself and to not being addicted to Thorazine anymore so he can get back on the real shit. Um, it's a it's a pretty uh, and there's no way out. Right. As you said, he, he dies using it. Yeah. Um, so it's a pretty bleak picture. And it's also a very different picture than Jack Torrance. Mm -hmm. which ha is a complicated relationship with drug abuse or with alcohol abuse, right? There's a sense that it's inherited, right? Mm -hmm. That, that you know, his father did it and he's struggling with that and ultimately fails in that struggle. Um, with Andy, it's because he wanted to make a little bit of money. He, he chose to go get that first dose mm -hmm. and he's kept going ever since. Um, yeah. So you know, different trajectory even. Yeah, and uh, when I say that Andy's a new type of King character, and what I mean is, like, he is... J Jack is an alcoholic, but Andy is the prototype of the King addict. I'm thinking here of a character specifically that shows up in the Tommy Knockers. Um, yeah. And, like, when I when I make these distinctions, and also I think it's going to show up a, quite a bit in Misery as well, um, when mm -hmm. King writes about these addict characters, uh, he is so good at making it seem like hell. Like that is that is, I guess, a compliment that I will pay to Steve is that like I it, the way he describes the bodily discomfort and the headaches for me specifically, this might just be, you know, like a Michael thing. Um, but like it it just like ugh, like I cannot get over like when he drills down into how bad Andy is feeling. <laughs> the the additional thing, too, on that is I, I, I think you're right. It's a new King character, 
but it's a new king character that's out of kind of a form he had before. Mm-hmm. And I think that 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 he gets even more stock charactery as we get into the 1980s. Um, so, for example, Cap that you mentioned earlier, who's over the shop, he's a version of the character from The Stand, right? The mm-hmm. military commander who like sends um, the superflu, uh, you know, across the world in order to kind of distribute blame or whatever, uh, and ultimately ends up, you know, I think killing himself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, uh, Cap is the, I don't know, that character with a face, right, as a central character. And we're mm-hmm. going to see him a bunch more times as well. Um, so there's a way that, like, Stephen King in the 80s is is almost like pairing his previous character types down in some ways into even more kind of fundamental shapes and then packing them full of his then immediate concerns. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, yeah, I, I also, when I was uh, reading this, thought a lot about the Tommyknockers, uh, which is also another Stephen King novel that, um, you know, was kind of famously written in the depths of addiction um, in a way that some of them seem less. It, it seems like he had some ups and downs in the 80s and 90s, and Tommyknockers is definitely a down, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I guess, speaking of down, do we want to talk about John Rainbird? I have two things to say about John Rainbird at the mm-hmm. very beginning. One, John Rainbird is a deeply, I don't use this word very often, but I'm going to use it, problematic character mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in all of the ways that that, that one could. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that's the first thing I want to say. That's a truth. The second thing I want to say is that John Rainbird is the best character in this novel, and one of the most compelling characters that Stephen King has ever written. Yeah. No, one like absolutely I agree, right? John Rainbird as a character, there are so many problems here. We are going to uh drill down into some of that, but also like holy crap, he actually did it. Stephen King wrote a compelling antagonist. Yeah. <laughs> and and the thing is is that I, I I wish that Stephen King had written in the 80s the John Rainbird Chronicles. <laughs> just about just novels about John Rainbird. And you and I were talking about this a little bit, um, you know, uh, maybe a week ago or so, that, you know, John Rainbird in this novel, he's a, he's a Vietnam vet. Well, actually, let me back up one step. He is a Cherokee uh, mm-hmm. uh, who uh, lived on, grew up on a reservation, um, signed up to the military, um, and then went to Vietnam was, was, was high. I think, I think they were on acid. Were they on acid? Yeah, something like that. Or he and or his, something. his like company were on acid and walked into an ambush by American soldiers and a claymore blew half of his face off. Mm-hmm. And so that's his like vision of Vietnam. He comes back to the United States after that and becomes like a hitman for the government, essentially. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, one feels like if that if Stephen King could have somehow written in that this guy killed JFK, he would have. Yes. <laughs> if he could have like made that work. But we are introduced to him here as kind of like a fixer for the shop, which is like a maybe a little bit more R and D focused CIA. Yeah, kind of, it's kind of it's, it's called the Department of Scientific Intelligence. That is its official name. Um, and its front is that it primarily uh, is engaged in new energy technologies, which, again, is straight up the a thing that they rip off for Stranger Things because the government is secretly operating out of the power company there. Mm-hmm. 
So that's what John Ringberg does. And he comes into the novel because they need someone to finally actually get Andy and Charlie because the actual, you know, kind of day by day um, agents are not, not able to do it. And so uh, John Ringberg gets involved in that. And then John, John Rainbird wants to know what it's like to watch someone die. He like wants to see it. Mm-hmm. And so he he's doing that, and he for some reason he believes that if he watches Charlie die, and maybe if he dies at the same time, who knows, then it might be finally, like, compelling. You know, his kind of, I don't know, death instinct will be able to finally get uh, completed. Very Freudian, too, but in um, you get the sense that Stephen King might have skimmed over some of that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> to understand how it works. But, um, but yeah, a fascinating dude. Uh, kind of uh, Anton Chigurh. Yeah, right. And that's sort of, I mean, that's why I say when he's when he's he's compelling, right, is his, he's seen plenty of people die, but he's like looking for something in their death, right? He wants something out of seeing people die that he is not getting, but he seems to like think like, well, it could happen next time. And so mm-hmm. I'll do it again. And sort of what he wants in, in kind of the end, right, is he wants his own death, but he sort of also really wants to see as many other people die before he goes as well. It's like this, uh, uh like, uh, just concentrated, like, nihilism, right? He, he is, like, in some ways rendered himself a non-subject. He is just a thing mm-hmm. that kills. Yeah. And figures out ways to kill. Great at using computers, though. <laughs> It's excellent using computers. There's so many scenes in this novel of John Rainbird using computers and referring to times he used computers. He's our he first also, hacker. He is our, he is our first Kingian hacker. Mm-hmm. He also is obsessed with shoes, but it only shows up in two scenes. <laughs> this sounds I, this is so crazy. It sounds like a drill tweet. So what John <laughs> Rainbird does um, like this is again, right? Like there, there's all sorts of stuff bound up in this about sort of um, the representational tactics here and so on. But also the, the thing that I said to you last week about John Rainbird is like m- most of the time with Stephen King, when something is really weird and bad, I can at least kind of look at it and I can uh, reverse engineer his logic, right? I can look at it and be like, okay, it was a bad idea to do this, but I can see the steps you took to get there. And John Rainbird is like a bunch of stuff. And I have no idea how it all came together, but it did. So John Rainbird, with all of the money that he's making off of his government hit jobs, maintains a house in, I think, like New Mexico. And he doesn't live there most of the time, but it is his house. And it is filled with boxes of shoes because he loves shoes and he knows all the brands of shoes. And it just feels very, very drill of like time to walk around my New Mexico compound and look at my rooms filled with shoes that I bought with my money as a government government hitman. Yeah. Literally we get the internal, like, you know, uh, monologue at some point where he's thinking about his shoes and then cap says like, Hey John, you're going to show me your shoes one day. (laughs) And then it never comes up again. Like, that's so funny when when Cap makes the comment about seeing his shoes and like visiting his house because people know that John Rainbird's house is full of shoes. And he's a terrifying government hitman, right? He's like, you know, a, a tall native guy who, with half of his face missing. You know, he's only got one eye. Um, he wears an eye patch sometimes, but also sometimes he doesn't to intimidate people. Um, 
and, and when I was talking about, you know, kind of earlier, uh, you know, like the, the, the problematic stuff around John Rainbird, it, it's, you know, a lot of, um, a lot of, of racial stereotyping stuff going on. Right. So like John Rainbird can move without sound, mm-hmm. like he can just appear places and, and that's connected to being native. Um, but but then there's also weird stuff about it too, or like even more weird stuff in because this is why it's so so um, bad to read, is that it's Stephen King as a white man from Maine writing about John Rainbird's relationship to the stereotypes of being native mm-hmm. in in the United States. So like John Rainbird at one point says like. Uh, you know, I, I joined the army so I could get out, you know, not be on the reservation drinking, uh, I think it's a sterno or something, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, it's it's Stephen King uh, puppeting a character to have that character comment on negative stereotypes about his own race. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it just, mm-hmm. like, it doesn't, and and maybe that it's possible, I like, I'm, I'm, um, you know, open for all things to possibly happen, right? I'm, I'm a Mia Sue reader. I think, you know, the universe could catch fire at any moment, and that would be regular, right? Mm-hmm. I think that a human being could possibly write this in a way that it is not uh, deeply offensive. Stephen King is not that writer. This no. is not his in his wheelhouse or in his capability to do so. And uh, and so, like, and, and then there's all the kind of stuff with John Rainbird's weird relationship with, uh, with Charlie that... that only lands in uncomfortable places and partially it's so uncomfortable because it's unexplainable. Mm-hmm. Um, it is, it, there are like some assumptions at the heart of that, that I think we're supposed to either empathize with or just kind of understand that are never made explicit. And so it just feels gross. Um, even if there is some other possible way of re- of reading it or approaching it, the tools to do so are not in this novel. Yeah, it's so what happens, uh, John Rainbird becomes obsessed with Charlie um, as as an idea, right? Before he's even put on uh, the, the case, uh, at least in partly because uh, he is fascinated by the potential for destruction that she represents. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And that is, again, that's sort of like John Rainbird's thing is that uh, just nothing, right? He, he would love it. If Charlie caught the world on fire, he he in fact says as much at one point. <laughs> um, but he he grows very interested in her, and then he becomes convinced that if he kills her, like that's that's going to be the one. Like whatever it is that he wants out of watching people die, um, she's going to be the one, and then he can die after or die with her. Uh, and so his plan is that he will get her to cooperate with the shop, and in exchange. Uh, when she, uh, you know, needs to be put down, he's like, I will be the one who does it. So, uh, Andy and Charlie have both been captured and they're being kept very, very separate. Um, and John Rainbird pretends to be the orderly who is coming in and cleaning. And he, you know, presents himself as just kind of like, just, just an orderly, right? Just some guy. And in a sort of lucky break, there is a bad thunderstorm and the power goes out and, Everyone at the shop is like flipping out because the power's out. Uh, but Rainbird specifically uses this as an opportunity to uh, pretend to be deathly afraid of the dark uh, in in a manner kind of like a, he acts like a, a, a sort of big child, right? He's kind mm-hmm. of putting on, I don't know how to really like 
get across exactly the vibe that I get from when he's doing these things. But he, he sort of starts talking and acting to her as if he's playing a part for like a children's TV show host. Yeah, he I mean, because he tells a story, you know, that he's afraid of the dark because he was put in like a pit and tortured for a year, I think, in Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, which is all all fake. But yeah, you're absolutely right. The The way he's doing it, it's to make um, that legible for a child in some ways, right? That like, it's flat, you mm-hmm. know, it's, it's very, uh, you know, almost, um, I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think your your description is right. It's like, what if someone was describing being afraid on a Barney episode? Yeah, it's it's and it's it feels very like, and I think intentionally so, like gross and frightening because it's pure manipulation on his mm-hmm. part. But it works on Charlie because she's you know seven now, eight years old, and like separated from her father and has no idea what's going on, and he has the right idea because what he does is he presents himself as someone who is just as much uh, sort of spit upon and mistreated by the shop kind of bureaucracy as she is. Also, this works because uh, Charlie has intuition, like like some sort of, of psychic power that allows her to read intent or read the future or whatever. Um, it's, it's a little bit unclear about so Charlie how has works. all the psychic powers, just for the record. Yeah, she's got a lot of different stuff going on. Uh, she And she also... I think she has telekinesis, telekinesis at one point too, but uh, it doesn't work on John Rainbird because he's not white. Mm-hmm. Uh, because she says that one of the other people that she had no intuition about, I think he was an Asian man. Yep. Um, and we know uh, from uh, Andy's comments at the beginning that his powers also do not work on Asian people. But then the idea that, I guess where, where I'm thinking is, does it only work white person to white person? <laughs> or white person white people uniquely susceptible to mind why, control why aren't we talking more about white on white mind control uh, but but you know what i mean right like i guess what's so like cryptic to me about it is that stephen king cannot normally shut the hell up about uh-huh. this stuff and yet we're left with some big questions you know we have the hierarchy he he explains that right that it's got this kind of like weird racial hierarchy but we don't get a good sense of where everyone lands right mm-hmm. like is it is it a white supremacist or an implicitly white supremacist hierarchy is it where all white people are on the bottom which is just as weird um in that regard right in his like fictional thing so i don't know that that's the thing is i just can't trace stephen king's mind here and mm-hmm. again that probably has to do with the sheer amount of cocaine that the man was doing yeah um yeah so i guess uh John Rainbird uh, is very compelling, if only because he is a he's a Stephen King character who we may not know why he wants something, but we know what he wants. And it's something pretty specific, at least in the terms of wanting to watch someone die or wanting to watch a particular character die. Uh, And he is trying to accomplish that goal right up through the end. Uh, Do we want to talk Mm -hmm. about how this all plays out? Well, I guess I want to say really briefly that it might feel to you, dear listener, that we have jumped around or moved non-linearly or uh, just kind of spottily talked about this novel, but we haven't. Um, We have talked about every major event in the novel other than uh, when they're captured, which is like John Rainbird sits in a tree with a dart gun and shoots them both in the neck. Mm Mm-hmm. It's the that's that's our requisite. Actually, the other thing that's interesting about this book is that it's the least New Englandy of the books so far. 
Mm-hmm. But that segment is when they're in Vermont, when they're at uh, Andy's <laughs> grandfather's old cabin on a on a pond. And so mm-hmm. they stay there over the winter and it's very New England. Andy goes to the town, uh, like the nearby town, and there's a bunch of old guys sitting around at the general store, which we've talked about on this show before. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very, very New England. But otherwise, this book takes place in like Ohio, New York and Virginia. Mm-hmm. And and most of the information that takes place is like they're driving somewhere or they're riding in a car somewhere and we're getting all these thoughts and kind of flashbacks to all the stuff that we've talked about so far. Mm-hmm. As far as like main set pieces that have happened, you know, locations in the novel that matter, there's like only four or five, um, you know, and really it's split in half. First half, they're on the run. Second half, they're in the shop, as as Michael kind of explained. And there's a lot of like all these Stephen King books, right? There's a lot of kind of place setting and talking and getting people's emotions and feelings about it, but there's not a lot that happens uh, in that way. I will say I really like the uh, that Vermont segment, if only because it's revealed that the shop knows that they're there immediately. And there's some really cool Stephen King stuff where he goes into, um, Andy oh, goes so into, cool. yeah, into that general store and he buys a birthday present for Charlie and uh, as soon as he buys the birthday present, the the guy who like owns the store, you know, like down home, good old boy, goes into the back and uses his secret telephone to call in. And it's yeah. revealed that like everyone here uh, has been watching and there's like dudes hanging out in the uh, in the trees and stuff, taking photos of them. And so, you know, basically that at least I don't know, a month of their life has been straight up the Truman Show. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's great. Great stuff. It is. It's really, really good. Um, the other, I guess, big moment that we haven't touched on as much is the death of Vicky. Um, mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. God. And at least partly that is because it is uh, there's not much to say about it other than it happens. Vicky is not done well by this novel. She is uh, Andy's wife. Well, Andy's girlfriend, then his wife, uh, then Charlie's mom. And then one day uh, the shop comes by the house while Andy is at work and Vicky gets killed and uh, Andy runs home because he has his own flash of, of intuition and he finds Vicky's body and he finds out that uh, they've kidnapped the shop has kidnapped Charlie and he ends up tracking them down and like taking Charlie back. And that's where he uses his first big uh, kind of like really really bad for him kind of uh push to to get her back and then they're on the run from that point forward but yeah just so because it sounds like we haven't talked about vicky much she is a character in this novel she's just not much of one yeah she she barely exists and uh uh you know when she's not just murdered she's tortured to death and then shoved into like a linen closet in the basement Mm -hmm. Uh, it's literally a case of fridging before fridging yeah um uh, and, uh, it's, uh, g- gross and bad. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that, unfortunately, from Steve of, uh, throwaway characters getting just straight up murdered in order to make the plot move and be a little bit more clean and convenient for him going forward. Um, I really like when he, uh, gets Charlie back though. And he tells that one guy you're blind and mm-hmm. the other guy go to sleep and they never recover. Yeah, the guy who he told was blind spends the rest of his life thinking he was blind. And I think the the man he told to go to sleep, I think, wakes up occasionally, but keeps falling into comas, basically. Well, so he goes into a coma for like several weeks. And then now anytime anyone says the word sleep, he'll just go to sleep for hours at a time. Um, So it like keeps rehappening to him. 
Oh, um, and that actually, so that we should explain, if we're going to talk about the ending, we should explain a little bit about the echoes. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which is a consequence of uh, Andy's push power. Um, mm -hmm. What we talked about earlier um, with the the doctor who ends up completing suicide after Andy uses mind control on him, the... the um, the reason that sort of happens is because Andy is trying to manipulate that doctor into uh, Andy is going to be shipped away by the shop because they're like, well, they, they keep him around basically as a bargaining chip. They think that he doesn't have his power anymore because um, they know he has limited use of it. And so they keep him around as a bargaining chip for in the case of Charlie. Uh, but then they're thinking like, well, this isn't really like Rainbird's making progress and we're just going to, you know, send Andy to the Maui uh, facility. Um, and we know that mm -hmm. good things do not happen at the Maui, Maui facility because the only other survivor of the clinical trials that they went through is being kept there in a padded room. So uh, Andy, uh, he, he uses the push on him and and Andy knows that sometimes when he uses the push, for reasons he doesn't understand, the push starts an echo. Uh, and then the echo mixes the metaphor. So the, the echo is what Andy describes as kind of like these weird knock-on effects of sort of like unanticipated, like unconscious associations that someone might have. Uh, and he like, you know, he when he's pushing, he uses just like the right type of word or the wrong type of word. And it it makes a connection in the person's mind and pulls up some sort of like buried trauma that they then can't stop thinking about. And slowly um, their entire condition just, just deteriorates. And, and so that's what happens to Pinchot. Um, and he ends up using uh, his push on Cap the uh you know head of the shop and that sets him off into his own kind of echo and sort of the grossness of of pinchets aside i do like how the echoes work because they do mm -hmm. feel like weird and creepy and associative in the way that they kind of like like the character just fixates suddenly on something that we have never seen them care about before and then it keeps coming up for them and they feel like they feel disoriented right they feel bad and they don't know what's going on um and in cap's position especially like i cap is not a good person <laughs> he's not like he, he's the head of like you know uber cia like murder squad um but like when he when his echo starts really like going off and he uh is so it starts out with he keeps thinking about golf and he can't stop thinking about golf and specifically like what happens when you slice in golf and then the slice in golf uh like makes him think of the s sound and then he's like oh snakes and then he can't stop thinking about snakes and how when you're golfing and you slice and you go to get your ball, there are snakes in the high grass and you got to watch out for the snakes. And oh, my God, there's a snake in my house. And um, he's like so pathetic and like unraveled. And Andy is like hardcore pushing him. And like he, he like says to Andy, like, stop that. It hurts. Like he doesn't even know what is happening, but he knows that like something is hurting him. And it's like, ugh. Yeah, I mean, the implication, too, of Andy's push power is that, you know, he's giving himself these kind of micro hemorrhages in his mind. And if that's how the push goes out, then I don't know. 
I mean, that, that's how the push has got to come in, right? I mean, mm-hmm. if mind control is physical coming out one side, I don't know why it wouldn't be physical coming out the other. So uh, it probably does legitimately hurt uh, to, to be pushed. And, you know, that's that's kind of our one little window into it. Yeah, I think that the, the echo is um, uh, fa- fascinating as a concept. I'm really surprised it never comes up again in Stephen King. As uh-huh. far as I know, I can't, I can't think of another time. Um, I mean, I don't think, I think ultimately, unfortunately, it, it, it is more often an opportunity or it would only exist as an opportunity to do more things like pinch it, meaning mm-hmm. uh, for Stephen King to kind of salaciously give you these ripped from the headlines, you know, non-normative behaviors and be like, Ooh, isn't it weird that people do those things? Um, so I think it would only ever feel gross in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, as a, as a concept, really cool. The, this idea that there's this kind of, you know, um, merry-go-round going around in your head and you can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, it's, it's the end of the novel. Um, at, at the, at the, uh, at the end, they're in the stables. Uh, Charlie has negotiated because she, uh, she doesn't want to be tested on for a long time. And then John Rainbird says, Hey, well, look, if you do some tests, um, because you know, he's secretly, um, uh, uh, he is, he's acting as if he's a janitor, but, or an orderly, and uh, really, he's working for the shop, but she doesn't know that. And so he kind of suggests to her, hey, you should do the testing they want you to do, but make sure you get something out of it, right? Make sure they let you see your dad or make sure they let you go outside or make sure they let you see some horses. And obviously, they're never going to let her see her dad again. And so she develops this relationship with Necromancer. Uh-huh. <laughs> the Necromancer horse. the horse. <laughs> It's the most just Stephen King ass thing on the planet. However, not the most Stephen King thing uh, in this novel. But it all works out in the end that Andy is pushing the captain and Charlie gets her way back out to the stables. And and there's this kind of standoff that happens at the end where um, Andy is at the stables. Or actually, I guess first, John Rainbird goes to the stables and he puts himself in the loft and he's got a, a gun with a silencer on it. Charlie shows up and John Rainbird is basically she and she knows what's up with John Rainbird now. Um, Andy got a message to her through mm-hmm. mind controlling cap. And so she knows what's up and she's like, oh, John Rainbird, you're bad now. And he says, yes, I am. But he knows that she will not use her um, fire powers because he's in this uh, stables with the horses and Charlie likes the horses because she's, you know, a child. Mm-hmm. So ha ha ho using using uh, a child's emotions against her. Then Andy shows up, and he's coming to get Charlie. That's the whole plan, and John Rainbird's there. And now there's like this kind of thing of John Rainbird is going to kill Andy uh, if Charlie doesn't come to John Rainbird. And if Charlie comes to John Rainbird, then he's going to kill her. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's just like, oh, what's going to happen? Lo and behold, Cap rolls up, who ha- and he has this like echo in his brain running around about snakes and being deathly afraid of snakes and he sees a melted fire hose mm-hmm. and starts just absolutely freaking out right like it's the snake mm-hmm. like here it is and so he runs up on it and starts smashing it with a rake distracting john rainbird long enough for andy to push john rainbird to have him jump out of the the hayloft and hit the ground breaking his leg or arm or something and then uh, opening the opportunity for Charlie to get him, basically. Mm-hmm. So, you know, first thing here, 
the critical uh, fulcrum of the end of this novel is an old man yelling about a, a water hose, which also feels like a drill tweet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Screaming snake. Snake. <laughs> so so there's that. Uh, the other thing is that Stephen, this is the second time Stephen King has used a hayloft as a plot device. There was that short story <laughs> that oh, we read yeah. too. Um, and, and also, I mean, I guess actually it's the third time a hayloft has come up because there's the whole story about, um, the bad guy in the dead zone, uh, oh. you know, doing the stuff with the woman in the hayloft. So yeah. I don't know what's going on. In, you know, I, I, in some ways I think that the echo is a little bit of Stephen King putting himself in the novels too, because he really gets fixated on some stuff and he <laughs> seems to not be able to shake it. Um, but that's the end of the novel. Um, you know, that, that's the final setup. Charlie... Um, literally, um, she pushes because John Rainbird shoots Andy, um, and, and, um, mortally wounds him, which doesn't really matter because he is like blown out his brain, pushing John Rainbird. And, uh, so Charlie uses her fire powers on him and it's so hot that it melts his everything except his bones like immediately. Mm Mm-hmm. And burns all of his bones into like ash, mm-hmm. and then she blows all the hinges off of the uh, off of the horse corrals, or you know whatever those things are called, mm-hmm. the horse house, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> to let the horses run free. And by this point, all the shop agents are there, and the shop agents begin shooting the horses, which is just awful, uh-huh. terrible. Uh, and uh, then Charlie comes out, and uh, as her. Father, in his final breath, he says, uh, you know what, Charlie? You should just use your fire powers. Just go ahead and do it. Um, you know, I was wrong before. This is a war, Charlie. You know, show him that it's a war. Uh, I love you, Charlie. Blah, and he dies. Mm-hmm. And then her complex that we talked about way back with Wanless, right? Because it was the father. Again, this is very Freudian, right? The father taught her not to use her powers. And now he has removed the blockage. The complex is resolved. Yep. And so uh, then we get all these uh, scenes very um, it's actually uh, what happens here is kind of a prelude to the um, the explosion, the factory explosion or the boiler explosion that happens in Derry and it mm. when Stephen King's describing all of the like shrapnel that flies around and all like the people who get wounded and, and maimed in that way. Mm-hmm. Charlie blows the end off of the stable and it like shoots shrapnel everywhere and it's like cutting uh you know people in twain and all kinds of stuff and there's like all these little details it's very much that kind of salem slot wandering cameras eye thing that we've talked about a few times uh i really like the one detail where it's like um it it severed one guy's ear and he didn't even know it till 10 minutes later because Mm -hmm. of just all the chaos that's happening um so really great writing here like communicating just just pure chaos um, for someone who has never been, as far as I know, in a truly chaotic situation, Stephen King can really write it. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, then she leaves. Yep. Like, <laughs> she walks up, she she leaves, uh, she goes back to upstate New York to meet up with the Manders family, the, mm-hmm. the uh, elderly farming couple that we mentioned at the beginning. Uh, and she stays with them for a while. And tries to decide how best to get her story to the media. And then she decides Rolling Stone magazine. It it is the most because she goes to the she goes to the library. Mm-hmm. You're really underselling it here. <laughs> she goes to the library 
and she says, uh, uh, my papa told me that uh, anyone who wanted to know anything had a, you know, had a difficult question should go to the library. And she goes to the library and she uh, basically is asking for a publication that has no connections to the government. Uh huh. <laughs> and they write down an address for her. And at the very end, it is revealed. You know, she goes up an elevator and it's like all the news that will fit or something like that is the slogan. Mm-hmm. And she goes in and it's Rolling Stone magazine. And she's going to use Rolling Stone magazine, the heart of the counterculture. In order to, uh, you know, print her story and uh, get one up on, uh, you know, finally get justice, you know, for her her dear papa. Mm-hmm. Um, very similar to the Dead Zone and in the, like, faith that, that using the media to, like, speak back to the government will actually work. Mm-hmm. And I guess post Watergate, you might have that feeling. Yeah, they're like, oh yeah, we, you know, there 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 is an opportunity to use that. I think it's like in reading it in twenty twenty one is the most politically naive thing uh-huh. that I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> but it's basically if I were like, I've got the biggest, hardest hitting story that's gonna blow this whole thing wide open. Vulture, here I come. <laughs> <laughs> It's like DM Garrett over at Pace. <laughs> yeah, I'm gonna be like Garrett. I got this big thing. I hope Pace Games is ready for this. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I've been been ex- my my father was experimented experimented on by the state, and we're coming for it. I'm gonna need you to make some some room in the review schedule. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness, yeah. So I mean, so, that's yeah, that's Firestarter. That's how it ends. Yeah, so that hasn't really aged very well, but, uh, and you know what? I don't think this novel has aged very well, period. I don't think this is necessarily a great novel. Um, no. I mean, we're I, definitely, I think we've hit what I would think of as Stephen King's Silver Age. Yeah, yeah. Where where uh, there are fewer, you know what? I was about to say fewer hits than misses, but I don't know if that's true. We'll find out. I don't, I don't want to get ahead of myself. Yeah, and when I when I say Silver Age, also I don't even necessarily mean that. Like I, I'm not thinking about ratios here, but I'm thinking about something. Uh, something about the way that the imagination. This this sounds like a huge slam on him, and I don't even really intend it that way. But sort of the imagination kind of contracts, right? Or mm-hmm. like, yeah. uh, we I mentioned this last episode, but it did seem like from Carrie through the stand there was something new or different was coming into each novel. And now, as you've pointed out, we have kind of hit a um, Stephen King has matured, right? Is one, another way of talking about it is that he's Mm -hmm. kind of like reached the point where he has his toolkit and he doesn't need to make as many uh, swings with it. Yeah. We were watching someone build Lego sets Mm -hmm. uh, for sure. Right. All the pre-existing parts are there and, um, Maybe there were some interesting swings here or there, you know, like the the push or or John Rainbird, right? But, um, you know, the whole thing the the whole thing is like Kid Carrie. Um, if instead of an evil mom, she had the world's most caring dad. Yep. I mean, re- you know, like mm-hmm. to be as re- like brutally reductive about it. That's really what this is. Um, you know, instead of that principal, there's a a, a government guy. <laughs> instead of a teacher, there's John Rainbird. Right. Like, like like there's a pretty clear, you know, find and replace going on here. I I think uh fortunately, I think after this book we're going to see Steve or I guess over the next 
couple Stephen King books, not not Bachman books, but Stephen King books. We're going to see a little bit more stretching, hopefully. But uh, it is really weird, actually, to read this and The Dead Zone back to back because they are just straight up science fiction novels. Yeah. Like they, not, not even like secret science fiction novels like the other ones are. Yeah, exactly. Like this is like I, I said last time that The Dead Zone didn't feel that much like a science fiction novel to me, but this straight up does. And in fact, the only thing that makes it feel even close potentially to a horror novel is the fact that it's so gross. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that's that element. Um, do we want to talk about our segments? Yeah, you want to talk about uh, my favorite Kingism over here? Sure thing. So uh, I realized we haven't really been explaining the segments over the episodes. We're taking them as self-evident. But in case you're just jumping in with us, I'll, I'll explain. My favorite Kingism is the segment where Cameron and I pick out a sentence or a couple sentences, some brief uh, portion of the novel that is uh, indelibly Stephen King uh, in either prose or tone or idea. Um, and you're all right if I go first? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Go ahead. All right. So uh, my favorite Kingism is actually the introduction, not the immediate introduction of John Rainbird, but it is the scene where we first see him uh, because we are with Cap. We're kind of at Cap's perspective, and he is having a meeting with John Rainbird. John Rainbird comes into the office and he says, good afternoon, Cap. And Cap replies, is it afternoon? And John Rainbird smiles and he holds up um, the watch that he's wearing. And he says, by 14 minutes, he said, I picked up a Seiko digital watch on the black market in Venice. It is fascinating. Little black numbers that change constantly. A feat of technology. I often think, Cap, that we fought the war in Vietnam not to win, but to perform feats of technology. We fought it in order to create the cheap digital wristwatch the home ping pong game that hooks up to one's TV, the pocket calculator. I look at my new wristwatch in the dark of night. It tells me that I am closer to my death, second by second. This is good news. <laughs> um, Steve, what are you doing? And, like, what I love about this is, like, on the one hand, just, like, the big ideas that that Steve is uh, uh, swinging at here, right? Sort of, he's trying to get at something about, like, technological progress and, like, the military-industrial complex. And also, this is thematic to the novel, of course, right? Because what the, the shop sees Charlie as a weapon of war, right? Mm -hmm. uh, technology and war and, and destruction are all kind of linked up here. Um, but also, like... Just the way that John Rainbird, again, has his kind of, like, Anton Chigurh moment here. Yeah, it sounds like a thing Stephen King was, would be, like, working out for for a film, uh -huh. you know? That sounds like a movie line. Uh-huh. But uh, my favorite one here, uh, there's, a, there's a guy named Orv Jameson uh -huh. who shows up several times in this novel. Orv Jameson is just a dude who works for the shop. Um, he, uh, he calls himself OJ, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, in reference to that, the other OJ, but when uh -huh. he was a, uh, football player and, uh, and, uh, yeah, anyway, he's just like a, like a shop perspective character, right? He's like a work a day dude. Who's like hunting down, uh, Andy McGee and Charlie and trying to do it. And he's there the day that like, uh, at the farm when everything blows up and he's like, I never want to be involved in this shit again. Mm -hmm. Lo and behold, he is there at the end. He's at the shop and it's on page 447 of my book. He gets his own little micro chapter 
because there are several of these like you know couple paragraph chapters here um in in uh in the final thing at the shop but uh i'm just gonna read the whole thing it's pretty short Orv Jameson was standing underneath the loudspeaker in the third floor lounge of the North House, holding the windsucker. This is a gun that he has. The windsucker in one hand. When he heard Jules' message, he sat down abruptly and holstered it. Uh-oh, he said to himself as the three others he had been shooting the eight ball with ran out. Uh-oh, not me. Count me out. <laughs> the others could not run there, or the others could run over there like hounds on a hunt scent if they wanted to. They had not been at the Manders farm. They had not seen this particular third grader in action. What OJ wanted more than anything at that point in time was to find a deep hole and pull it over him. <laughs> and like that, that's a, a, you know, this kind of brilliant Stephen King touch of like, there's, there, there is a third grader running around blowing people up and like, you know, melting their bones. <laughs> and there's a character who knows all about that and does not want to be involved and yet does get involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just kind of like, you know, this perspective of dread that's about to happen. Um, Stephen King, I think one of the things he's going to get so much better at during the 1980s is like the pacing of dread which he, he's experimented with quite a bit. Uh, you know, The Shining, we talked about how so much of that is kind of dependent on this kind of pacing of, oh no, what's about to happen? But he really leans on that in, in these novels in the 80s, and I think he gets better at it uh, across the board. Well, that's great. I, I really like that OJ, the OJ character as well. And yeah, it I love him having that moment of being able to... I don't know, just be like to be a person in this world. <laughs> <laughs> yes, he's the only person who seems to be just a dude doing his job. And he's like evil because he's a part of the shop. But uh, he's got like a normal dude's perspective on things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, well, speaking of the shop, uh, that takes us right into what in the Kingiverse, which is the segment where we run through uh, any connections to the world of Stephen King, his other novels um, that we may notice if you're not a Stephen King reader. This is because many of his novels are interconnected in sometimes direct and sometimes indirect ways. Uh, the shop, which we've talked about extensively, uh, shows up again. It will show up again. Uh, it is a kind of I don't think we. Well, I I can't say too much because he's written books that I haven't read. We don't get anything that goes so directly to the shop, but the shop will show up in the background of um, a a couple of other novels. uh, Someone, uh, no, no one correct me. This is just between Michael and I. So do not let me know if this is true. Mm -hmm. I believe that his more recent novel, The Institute, Uh is actually about the shop. So that's why I said, like, don't hold me to this, because mm. I was I was getting ready to say, I don't think we get another, like, direct shop novel. But then I remembered he just put out The Institute, and it sounds an awful lot like that could be The Shop. Like, I don't mm. know if he would necessarily make it that, but, you know, it it would be unsurprising and i would not be disappointed because we find out at the end of the novel we get a a little a short chapter with the shop's new director um who's a woman so (laughs) no glass ceiling broken by a fireball Mm -hmm. uh so we know that the shop continues on and is still going so Mm -hmm. yeah weirdly enough as a a thing that that uh figures in we're also well we'll we'll come back to it i guess but it's weird that this is a thing that um just doesn't really show up all that many more times when it really could um, mm-hmm. in different ways. Uh, one that I noticed that, that I put on here is that the doctor who experiments on Charlie is mm-hmm. named Patrick Hockstetter. Yep. 
who is a completely unrelated teenager in it. Mm-hmm. No relation. Yep. It's just another character named Patrick Hoxtetter. Yeah, it's really weird. And I remember noticing that when I was reading these as a teenager and trying to figure out if they were supposed to be like the same character, but in alternate timelines. And no, they're not. I'm pretty sure Stephen King just like, you know, stumbled upon this name, liked it, used it, and then forgot that he used it and used it again. Yep. And uh, Stephen King at the height of his powers. What are you going to tell him? That yeah. You're going to tell him no? I think not. Um, another thing I wrote on here is that John Rainbird says the phrase bite my bag, uh, <laughs> which famously shows up in other Stephen King stuff. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if this is like something that people said when Stephen King was but a boy. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know who, who said it. I think it's, um, you know, you saw the most recent it adaptation, right? Yeah. I think that a human being says bite my bag in that film. I think so probably i mean that's the sort of that's the sort of thing that would be in the latest it adaptation mm-hmm. can't wait till we get to that uh, <laughs> oh, you, but we're probably gonna watch the miniseries Ooh. maybe it'll be a bonus bonus ode for us to uh watch the the two it films and go in on them because there's a lot to talk about yeah um but the next thing we need to talk about is our final segment uh uncle stevie's mixtape now this is the segment where because stephen king is a a a known music lover cameron and i go through the novel that we've just read and we mark all of the songs that have been mentioned uh either like sort of in passing or like the songs that get quoted directly right that are on the radio or that characters sing um and usually there's some really great interesting stuff in there some conversations to be had uh i'm going to start this is a pretty long uncle stevie's mixtape there's quite a few songs in this one um Mm. so i'll i'll start us off our first song on uh the playlist is happy birthday to you this is a stone cold banger it's understandable that this is a classic sung by children across the country how many stars uh i would say four stars four stars to happy birthday to you yeah, I've got a couple good ones in here too. Uh, this old man, uh, you know the the standby sung by uh, again children across the nation from Sesame Street to another street somewhere across the United States, perhaps in I don't know um, Pasadena, California. Um, terrible song, one star. <laughs> uh- So if uh, you're like me, you might have some memories of going to vacation Bible school and singing the hit song, Jesus Loves Me. Unfortunately, I think it's pretty repetitive. Um, It makes its point in the first couple lines and then just keeps going. Uh, One star. Um, I got a real I got a real one for you. Camp Town Racist. I thought I'd just try to get the commentary in it. And yeah. One, <laughs> one star. No, uh, Camp Town Races. It is racist. One star. Um, if it is not clear, <laughs> these are all songs that are mentioned in the novel. Uh, and they like they are some of the few that are mentioned. This is a very strange Uncle Stevie's mixtape. Um, the next song, this is one that not mentioned by name. I had to kind of... Uh, find this out through indirection it's mentioned very briefly that uh the 
some at some point someone hears a song on the radio and the lyrics are kind of indirectly described by the narration and it appears to be the song operator uh no artist is given but i based on the date of the novel um i chose to listen to the manhattan transfer version uh this is a weird gospel song about <laughs> about calling uh, a bunch of things people um Hold on, I'm just going to read this. Like on the telephone? Yeah, so here is how this song goes. Operator, give me information. Information, give me long distance. Long distance, give me heaven. Operator, information, give me Jesus on the line. It is a song about, like, (laughs) trying to make a phone call to Jesus. cool <laughs> but like doing so by calling everyone else first yeah you gotta get it you gotta go in the right line i don't have jesus's home number do you no no i don't i guess i would have to call operator and have them patch me through to heaven <laughs> uh, well into information yeah to then patch you through to heaven yeah that makes <laughs> sense um so this is like the one real song that gets close to mentioned everything else are just like these are things that charlie sings in the car like mm-hmm. all, all of the other songs um, operator. I'm going to give it five stars for camp value. Uh, I get just apparently the composer Vivaldi. Yes, because we know that cap loves to listen to classical <laughs> music, but he never listens to specific songs. He only listens to composers. Mm-hmm. So is Vivaldi the, uh, the rights of spring guy? Uh, no, uh, Vivaldi is seasons. Okay. Uh, that's all right. Uh, three stars. And I got Cap's other favorite, uh, Chopin. Uh, (laughs) Chopin, if you're not familiar, does a lot of uh, very romantic piano music. It sure is romantic. If if you try to imagine what romantic piano music sounds like, it sounds like Chopin. And, you know, when it comes to sounding like Chopin, there's no one like Chopin. So five stars. Wow. Five stars for Chopin. Yeah. Hmm. Um, we didn't really talk about it and we don't have to, uh, I mean, we mentioned it briefly, but, uh, there's an epilogue for this where Stephen King straight up says, Hey, I'm Stephen King. And I'm here to say that telekinesis is probably real. Yeah. And if you haven't read the previous seven books I've published on the topic, <laughs> here are some other books that you might want to read about it. And also the government experiments on people. Mm hmm. Notably, he doesn't mention, um, you know, uh, uh, the Tuskegee experiments or anything like that. No. You know, uh, he he mentions like the CIA giving people LSD. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Yeah. Well, uh, we're going to get some more thoughts from Stephen King on the government and how society is going and what we maybe need to do about it when we reconvene next month and we discuss the next Bachman book uh, 1981's Roadwork this is one I don't believe I've read before I have read it I have very poor memory of it I have started rereading it I do not like it next month's <laughs> going to be real interesting uh, I, I, I like I I think I, maybe I've even talked about this in the discord I've I thought that I had read it and then I looked at the description and um, 
and then I didn't. I think that I am getting the book Roadwork confused with the short story Dolan's Cadillac, mm. <laughs> which is also which is about Roadwork, but <laughs> is not the novel Roadwork. <laughs> um, uh-huh. Just King things working on roads. Yeah, St- Stephen King does get fixated on that at one point. <laughs> There's more than one thing about working on roads, but we will uh, talk about that much later. There's a bonus ode, Michael. Oh? Uh, if if people go over to patreon.com slash range touch or go down to the description of this episode and click on the link, if they support at $5 or more, but at least $5, they get access to the bonus episodes of Just King Things. There will be a bonus episode. At the moment they are listening to this, there's a bonus episode over there on the film version of Firestarter starring Drew Barrymore and some other people also. (laughs) I mean, yes. Yeah, there are some other people in that film. Mm -hmm. Uh, If you also just, you know, want to help us out, uh, we are still trying to see if we can get uh, 1,025 supporters on Patreon. Once that happens, we will begin a podcast about the webcomic homestuck that will be like this but about homestuck rather than talking about stephen king and we'll probably talk about it in very very similar at length ways (laughs) sounds like a really great time for everyone at home i'm sure the kids who are listening uh are turning to their parents and saying i really want you to support range touch on patreon mom mama mama (laughs) (laughs) please Five dollars on Patreon. I want to listen to the bonus ode. Uh huh. And uh, I'm gonna. I bought the Blu-ray. Um, I've spent. I've spent a lot of money on Stephen King physical media. I'll say <laughs> that already, and I'm I'm willing to do. That's what the Patreon's for, right? It funds uh, the weirdness uh, that goes on here. I'm I'm willing to do it. I'm happy to do it. But I've got the physical Blu-ray right here on my desk. I'm gonna watch Firestarter, and then I'm gonna watch the commentary. Um, I thought that the commentary would be on the disc, but it's not. So (laughs) I'll find out when I, when I start, uh, listening to it, um, who the commentary is by. Oh, okay. Interesting. It's not listed. Yeah. (laughs) Sometimes they're not, but, um, I believe there is a commentary. So, well, now you have to, uh, back us. That's patreon.com slash range touch. Uh, if you listen to that episode, you will find out who did the commentary track on the Firestarter Blu-ray. Yeah. Maybe no one, maybe there's not one, but I'm 99% sure that when I looked it up, there was one, but it's just not on my budget Blu-ray disc. (laughs) Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I found out that there is a, well, we'll talk about it on the bonus episode. There's a, there's a wide array of Stephen King physical media objects. Mm-hmm. I'll say that. All right. Yeah. So save it. That's the bonus episode. If you want to hear more about that, check us out. You can also find us on Twitter. You can at us at range touch. You can find me on Twitter at Warren is dead. You can find Cameron on Twitter at C Kunzelman. And so until next time, Cameron, uh, take us out. Why are we doing this? What are we up to? Well, we sit down and we read these books Mm -hmm. and we say, God damn it, we got to do it for the world. And then we really read the books. We get down deep. We really start thinking about them and we say, Oh my God, we got to do it for Steve. Steve.